It's Friday, April 5th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Hopes were raised that Timothy Pitson had been found, but those hopes were dashed after the FBI determined that the person claiming to be the boy who went missing in 2011 was not him. It was actually a 23-year-old man named Brian Michael Reaney. But what actually happened to Timothy Pitson? My producer Miranda joins us to tell his story. Next, the controversy surrounding Joe Biden continues to swirl, despite him not officially running for president yet. There are now seven women who have accused Biden of invading their personal space, though none of the women felt it was sexual in nature. It was just not appropriate in a professional setting. Biden has said he will be more mindful of how he interacts with others going forward. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, joins us to discuss how all this will impact his potential bid. Finally, millennials are sick of drinking. Maybe not completely, but it seems that attitudes are changing about drinking and some are trying to cut back. As millennials are getting married and building families later in life, social life in their 30s is mirroring activities in their 20s. Amanda Mull, writer at The Atlantic, joins us to talk about changing attitudes about drinking and what may be driving that change. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We will never stop looking for you, praying for you, and loving you. I don't think that anything involving a child is a hoax. And I would reserve all judgment and pray for the young man involved. Joining me now is my producer, Miranda. We're going to talk about this crazy story. Uh, Hopes were raised so high and then dashed just as quickly. We're going to be talking about Timothy Pitson, who was from Aurora, Illinois. He's been missing since the suicide of his mother, Amy Fry Pitson, in a Rockford hotel room on May 14th, 2011. Timothy was last heard from the day before during a cell phone call with a relative. The reason why the story came up is all of a sudden a man was spotted who uh, the police report said he was a teenager and said he claimed to be Timothy Pitson, that he had just escaped his captors. What do we know, Miranda? Well, we know that the guy that was found claiming to be Timothy Pitson is not in fact, Timothy Pitson. Right. He's a guy named Brian Michael Reaney. He's in his early 20s, and he claimed to be this kid. And FBI did a DNA test, and they confirmed that the DNA did not match with that of Pitson. Timothy Pitson went missing when he was six, six and a half years old. Right. So he would have been about 14 years old now. And they've released a picture of this man, Brian Michael Reaney. They say he's 23. He doesn't look 14 years old at all. He doesn't look 23. Right. In my opinion, <laughs> he's Oscar. Had, he's had a rough time. So how did people spot him? How did they he come into the custody of police? The person claiming to be Timothy Bryan told investigators he escaped two kidnappers he described as white males with bodybuilder physiques, curly hair and tattoos. He said that he was staying at a Red Roof Inn with his abductors and that after he escaped, He ran across a bridge from Ohio into Kentucky, and he was found wandering the streets of a town called Newport. He was first spotted by a couple of teenage girls who were walking to school. They initially called 911 on him because he was being kind of weird and standing in the middle of the street. Another witness described it as he looked like he was going to collapse yeah. or that he was trying to break into cars. He looked very suspicious. He was to them. disheveled and dirty at uh, seven 30 in the morning. He had a hoodie on and yeah. And he was hanging around some cars. Another woman said she got up close to him. It looked as if he had been beaten up. He had bruises all over his face. So yeah, they called the police cops came about 15 minutes later, picked him up and whisked him away. And that's where he told them his story. 
And this has been one of the biggest mysteries for the family and Aurora not finding Timothy. They never were able to find him. The mother, Amy Fry Pitson, committed suicide and she left a note that said, I'm going to leave him with somebody who's going to love him and you'll never find him. Let's pivot to the actual case of Timothy Pitson, because for this news to come out and people's hopes to be brought up, you know, the grandmother, his aunt, his dad, all hoping that they finally found their their son, their long lost son. And to no avail, you know, it's heartbreaking. And we have a little clip of the family actually just saying how it was hearing the news and that that it wasn't him. It's devastating. Yeah. It's like reliving that day all over again. And uh, Timothy's father is devastated once again. As are we. You know, I, I was very close to Tim. He spent a lot of time here. The last morning I had him, he crawled in bed with me and told me I was the best grandma in the whole wide world. He's a wonderful little boy, and I hope he has the strength of personality to do whatever he needs to do to find us. That was the grandmother, Alana Anderson, and the aunt, Kara Jacobs. Let's get back into it. What happened to Timothy Pitson? The reports were that his father dropped him off at school, and then after, shortly after that, his mother picked him up, took him on a three-day trip to a zoo and some water parks. That was all before she was found dead by suicide in this Rockford motel room. So, Tell us a little bit of the timeline, Miranda. Police were able to map out a timeline of their travels. After the husband dropped off Timothy at school, it was a Wednesday morning. She pulled him out of his kindergarten class an hour later, telling the front office she lied to them, saying that there had been a family emergency. She then took him to the Brookfield Zoo and a water park in Gurney. And then the next day, they made stops in Racine and Johnson Creek, Wisconsin. They went to the Kalahari Resort in the Wisconsin Dells. It was there that a security camera actually captured them checking out on the Friday morning, and that was the last time Timothy was seen. Later that afternoon, the mom made several cell phone calls. Police say originated near a place called Sterling, Illinois, including that one you spoke about earlier in which Timothy talked to a family member, and they said that it didn't sound as if he were in any danger or there was any reason to worry. Security footage showed the mom at a grocery store in Winnebago that night before she checked into a Rockford motel alone. And it was the next day at 12.30 p.m. that workers found her body. And it's interesting because they said that they did an investigation of the mom's car and found that items were missing from it that would corroborate her story of giving him to someone. Like yeah. his car seat was gone. His backpack was gone. They even found out that the mother's SUV at some point had stopped on some gravel road in a nearby county or something. So maybe this is where the handoff of Timothy was made. We don't know. And James Pitson, his father, told People Magazine in 2015 that she always wonders what she told Timothy. In that last phone call, he sounded fine. Right. He said, why hasn't he tried to call? We taught him how to dial 911. This is your number. This is your mom's number. This is where you live, your address. All the stuff that you teach little kids to know where they're at and help identify themselves they taught Timothy, and this is the biggest confusion. Her mother, Alana Anderson, who was in that clip we just heard, said that you don't ever give your children away. I had some trouble forgiving her for what she did to herself. I don't think I can ever forgive her for what she did to her child. Their hopes got brought up so much with possibly finding their long-lost grandson and nephew and son for the father, James, and to no avail on this one. So we'll see what happens and we'll see what becomes of Brian Michael Reaney if he gets charged with making another false report or if there's something else, if maybe he's just confused and he has mental issues. We'll have to see and find out. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar.
social norms have begun to change, they've shifted, and the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. And I get it. I get it. I hear what they're saying. I understand it. And I'll be much more mindful. That's my responsibility. My responsibility, and I'll meet Joining it. us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Wanted to bring you back on to talk about Joe Biden again. He is mulling a run for the White House, but he has been accused now by, I think, seven women of invading their personal space. He's released a video now addressing it, saying that he's going to be listening and he's going to change the way he interacts with people. How has his response been to all of these allegations so far? You know, we didn't hear from former Vice President Joe Biden for a few days after these pieces started emerging. And he released this video, talked straight to camera, said he realizes that the times have changed, that he's always been the kind of person that was touchy-feely, that he was wanted to engage people in politics on a one-on-one basis. And then now he realizes that he shouldn't have done that. This was seen as sort of an apology, although he didn't appear to say the words, I'm sorry, anywhere in there, but demonstrating that he thinks it's a learning experience, that he thinks that he should be listening to these women and and changing his behavior. These allegations started with the former Nevada politician Lucy Flores, who said he came up behind her, uh, grabbed her shoulders and then kissed her on the back of the head. Other allegations have surfaced are all very similar, uh, either grabbing them on the shoulders or leaning in and pressing his forehead against the woman's and kind of whispering to them. A lot of these accusers have really said they didn't feel like they were being harassed or they didn't feel that it was sexual in nature. But what they have said is that they just felt it was out of place in a professional setting. And that's what really made them uncomfortable. How does this play into the overall theme of trying to pin these things on Joe Biden? It's really more about him being out of touch more than anything else. That's right. When I talk to people who are close to Biden or even just political folks in Washington, they say, look, there's a difference between what Joe Biden did, which is kind of be a space invader, invading people's personal space, and what, say, Donald Trump talked about doing on tape, which was grabbing women against their will, pressuring them in a sexual manner. That these are different things and that we shouldn't be treating them the same. But it is part of this narrative that Biden is just out of touch, that he's a man of a different time. That's his biggest struggle. You know, he's going to be walking on, presumably after he launches onto a debate stage with a number of opponents who are decades younger than him. He and his people think that that's an asset to him. He has seen everything. He has been there. He has experience. He can bring stability. But it's also going to be something he has to contend with. And something like this, where you're like, you're the guy who doesn't realize it's not okay anymore to put your arm on round women in a way that makes them uncomfortable is going to sort of exacerbate that notion that he's just not in his time anymore. There's been a lot of people who have come to the defense of the former vice president, people even pointing to efforts that he led to pass the Violence Against Women Act and other efforts to end sexual assault against women on college campuses. So they're pointing to a lot of that stuff. Has this derailed any of his campaign preparations? Because we're still expecting him to announce a bid for the presidency. There's no indication at all that this has derailed his plans. When I talk to people that are close to his pre-campaign campaign, they tell me that it's still full steam ahead. And in fact, they anticipated some of this. They thought this was one of the things that was going to be critical about Biden and the, the discussion that would be had. They also expect to talk about Anita Hill and how he handled the confirmation hearings in which she made sexual harassment accusations. They still expect 
expect to talk about the crime bill. They still expect to talk about some of his foreign policy positions. This is just the, the beginning of something that they expect to be a long conversation about his past experience. And, and Nancy Pelosi has really said, you know, he also didn't really apologize. He needs to change the way he acts and take ownership in the way he acts. And she said that it's not really how he perceives it, his interactions to be. It's how the person really receives it. So is this going to affect him long term? You know, that's to be seen. Any of this kind of accusation can and cannot affect a campaign. It really matters how they handle it, how they respond. At some point, he's going to do interviews and he's going to get asked about it outside of that controlled setting of a video that he put out, how he responds then, how he answers potentially criticism on the debate stage about it. That's what's really going to matter. And furthermore, how he behaves going forward. Once he starts running, there's going to be lots of instances of him and interacting with people in public. And if he's still sort of doing the same things, I think that it's a problem that doesn't go away. But if he handles it properly, it could be something that, that he weathers. And, and by the time we get to the Iowa caucuses next February, we've, we've all but forgotten. If women are being disrespected or mistreated, they should speak up and things should be handled accordingly. But I just can't imagine that with all of the presidential hopefuls, they're all scared of something unexpected coming out and just derailing their whole campaign. That is a fear that I think they all live in, especially if it's something that maybe just hasn't aged well, as they say, like something that would not have been considered wrong or inappropriate at the time that we now view in this context as wrong or inappropriate. And look, they also have to know that whatever vulnerability the president perceives them as having, he is going to really hone in on. The President Trump talked about Joe Biden in a speech on Tuesday night. He tweeted a video that was a cut of Joe Biden's video, but he like had a floating Joe Biden, hugging Joe Biden. It was really kind of strange, but Trump won't let things go right. if he thinks that it's to his advantage. And that's another factor they're all going to have to deal with going forward. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. What I found was more of an attitude change rather than a habit change. Millennials are getting older. As people get older, they generally drink less. But millennials are in an interesting position because previous generations would have a spouse or children that would help them move naturally toward other ways of spending their time. Millennials are less likely to have that. Joining us now is Amanda Mull, writer at The Atlantic. In the recent months, we've seen a lot of different stories, trends, stories about millennials who are currently about 22 to 38 years old, either getting sober or stopping drinking. You wrote an article about how that might necessarily not be the case, but attitudes about drinking are changing for young Americans. So what do we know about how millennials are drinking now? Drinking is an interesting topic because Drinking and substance use and tobacco are, are things that we have really good national data on that gets updated every year. So what we can see from 2015 to 2017, that's the most recent data, is that the rates of millennials drinking heavily have stayed about the same. There's been some small drops in millennials drinking heavily, but nothing super statistically significant. I looked at that data and compared to all these trend pieces I've seen lately about millennials getting sober, like that just doesn't quite check out. So I talked to a bunch of people. I, I put out a call on Twitter for people to tell me about their drinking habits and how they're feeling about it. And what I found was more of an attitude change rather than a habit change. Millennials are getting older as 
people get older, they generally drink less. But millennials are in an interesting position because previous generations would have a spouse or children or something like that in order to move, that would help them move naturally toward other ways of spending their time. Millennials are less likely to have that. So now we've just got this sort of general malaise about alcohol use and not really any good social template for what we do now. People think millennials are all the young kids right now, but that demographic is changing. They are the young adults. They're becoming middle-aged right now. And it is Gen Z is the next young group right now. They're the high schoolers and early college kids. Millennials are full-fledged young adults who are supposed to be marrying, having children, buying houses, settling into a social life that just looks a lot different than it did right after college or when people were in their early 20s. But as millennials are largely, as a cohort, not getting married or getting married much later, having kids much later, if having kids at all, having fewer kids, not buying houses, not moving to the suburbs. So for a lot of people who are like 35, the structure of their social life and the, the need to date, the need to see friends as a primary mode of social interaction is about the same as it was in their early 20s. So you end up, you know, with a bunch of 35-year-olds who are just spending a lot of time in bars, which gives them an opportunity to get sick of drinking in a way that previous generations just didn't really have to think about it. We've seen the rise of these kind of uh, alcoholic seltzer waters and Smirnoff mm -hmm. ice things and, and Mike's Hard Lemonades. Those sectors of the alcohol market are growing, but people still are changing their attitudes with it. And a lot of people also suggest that the rise in legalization of cannabis plays a big part in this. You know, there's a lot of people that are big smokers, so not so much big drinkers anymore. As millennials have gotten sick of drinking and the generation after us, Gen Z, just drinks a lot less than, than millennials did at the same age, you've got this sort of sea change in how Americans are interacting with substances. And that means that beverage brands are having to find new ways to package alcohol. So you get these alcoholic seltzers and things like that. And then you've also got a lot of those companies looking into ways to develop lower ABV beverages. So drinks with less alcohol content or drinks with no alcohol content that provides a nice calming effect in other ways. And then you've got the cannabis market and the prescription drug market. Just because millennials are sick of drinking doesn't mean they're sick of smoking or taking pills. And the substance abuse therapist that I spoke with said that she sees a lot of people in this age range who have moved on to weed or CBD, especially as a means to unwind after work at night instead of having two glasses of wine. You know, you take a CBD gummy or you smoke a little, you take a Xanax, something like that, right. which brings with it its own health concerns. The fact that millennials are sick of drinking doesn't necessarily mean they're improving their health, but it's just a shift. So where do you see this trend continuing? I feel like it's one of those things that's never going to go away. It's like smoking cigarettes. You know, people still do it all the time, but the attitudes do change and the methods change a lot of times. You know, vaping is huge now too. So where do you see it all going? What's really interesting is that millennials, I think, are just sort of the inflection point generation for this. Where you do see big differences in alcohol consumption is how much Gen Z kids who are in high school and college right now how much less they're drinking compared to millennials when millennials were the same age. You do see a significant drop there. They grew up in a world where cannabis use was much more normalized, where they've watched people try to get control of their health, try to find alternative means to relax. They have a lot less stigma around mental illness, and they have much better coping skills in identifying depression or anxiety. So they have a better opportunity to skip the self-medication that a lot of millennials and older people have done with alcohol in the past. So I think that I have a significant amount of hope that Gen Z will have a healthier, more moderate relationship to alcohol than Americans have long had. Amanda Mull, writer at The Atlantic. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. 
leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.